Oh, I, well, I was waiting for you. <laughs> okay. Okay. One, two, three. Welcome, Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your host, Matt Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 60 motherfucking nine. 69 on 420. Happy we, 420. Yeah, we're putting it out on Tuesday instead of our Wednesday. We skipped fucking 68 so that we could make this happen. We're paying money <laughs> to be in a studio right now. I'm, Does this sound better, guys? Leave a comment below. I, I'm looking at Alyssa's face right now, and it's the first time we've been in the same room recording this for, like, what? Like, two seasons now? I would say so. Yeah. It's been a very long time. We tried to record. You guys might remember we tried to record in person with Steven Suptic last <laughs> year, <laughs> and he lost the audio to that recording twice, so then we got really frustrated, right. and then we just decided to record remotely from there on out. But I have to say, it's so awkward. This feels like a first <laughs> date or something, because I, like, I don't know where... Hi, how do I just stare at your face this whole time? How did we do this before? I'm kind of remembering that when we used to record in person, you would always get freaked out because I would tell you something <laughs> scary and then my eyes would get really big and my eyes were scarier than the story I was telling. So right. I don't know. Be prepared. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm really excited for this. I hope you delivered for this episode. Fuck. Don't put any pressure on me. I know everybody's been like, everyone that's been donating is like, oh, can't wait for episode 69. Can't wait for 420. Blaze it. And I'm yeah. like, fuck. I hope this, I think this story is really out there but we'll see what the haunted fam thinks it's gonna be good because i'm gonna pretend like it's really good even (laughs) if it's not and then get everyone hyped about it women supporting women yeah that's how we should do it that's what lgh is all about and speaking of the haunted fam i'd like to shout out our donors for this very special episode 69 extravaganza we have chrissy d Haley a brie Alyssa s Alec and Joey, Say the Name Sarah, Elena B, Kathleen G, who continues to donate 69 cents <laughs> every day this month. Kathleen, I continue to see you and you are valid. Um, Rachel G, Kara H or Kara H, Anna L, Angela R, Jake C, who donated 69 cents or excuse me, $69.42. And he said, just imagine that it's 420 cents for this special episode. (laughs) Then Amanda S, Molly B, and Amber O. We have to give a very special shout out to Amber O. She has single-handedly paid me back for the entry fee to the shorties. If you guys remember, we raised money for the Webbies and then we raised like ten dollars extra for the shorties and then i just put it on my credit card and i was like fuck it this is an investment (laughs) she donated four hundred and twenty dollars and sixty nine cents for this episode amber O. amber you are saving my credit score right now and i am so appreciative oh my gosh amber if you haven't already ordered a pin or some merch or something like dm us or whatever yeah we'll give you whatever you want we will hand write you a letter Just let us know. DM us on Instagram at Let's Get Haunted if you are Amber O. If you're not Amber O, don't try to make a fake account because (laughs) we will get Liam Neeson on your ass and we will figure it out. Amber O, I would put you in my will, but then I feel like you'd be responsible for my debt and then it would just make it worse for you. So thank you. But we do love and appreciate you. Thank you so much, Amber. 
And I want to thank Christiana, Martha S., Shelby H., who donated $66.60. Thank you. Whoa. Caroline W., Omar C., Molly B., Brielle S., and Kat B. And everyone pretty much donated either $4.20 or $6.60 or $42.20 or whatever. And and we see you guys and we really (laughs) appreciate it. We love the meme and we really appreciate any donation big or small if it's 69 cents if it's six dollars and 66 cents doesn't matter we appreciate all of them yes very much thank you guys so much and if you want to donate to us you can venmo me at natstron or paypal.me slash natalia strawn or cash app at dollar sign natalia strawn or go to our um our website let's get haunted.com look in the top right hand corner and there's a link to donate Yes, and that will take you to our Ko-fi page. It's a giant button that says donate. And once you're on the Ko-fi page, it gives you a couple different options. You can sign up for recurring donations. So that could be anywhere from $5 and up. And you could just donate consistently every month automatically. Or you can just make a one-time donation. And when you donate, it says on the website, you are donating one cup of holy water to Let's Get Haunted. (laughs) We need it. So we really appreciate it. Also, I wanted to say it doesn't matter who you donate to. I noticed every episode recently that Alyssa gets way more donations. And so <laughs> I want you guys to know that I still get half of those, even if you like <laughs> Alyssa more. So it doesn't matter who you donate to. Well, that's very true. And also, I think it's mostly just because the Kofi is set up to my <laughs> PayPal and it's on our website. But also, it could be that they like me more. Maybe I just need my ego fluffed right now so right. we can pretend that's what it is. But it also doesn't matter, guys, because I get half yeah, of it. Yeah, she that's gets my half point. of it. Or you can Venmo me. I almost forgot to say, I also have a Venmo at DogMomUSA. And... If you don't have any money to donate, you can still help out the podcast. Um, We do also have merch available for sale at letsgethaunted.com, which we're running very low on. Uh, A lot of people have started buying, especially this past week when we promoted it in our last episode. But other things that some members of the Haunted fam have done for us recently, Taryn, I need to give a huge shout out to. She got our Wikipedia page approved. Oh my God, our Wikipedia page is... Our Wikipedia page is so nice, guys. You literally need to go and you look at it right look now. At it. I've never seen anything more beautifully written. I didn't realize it was about us at first, to be honest with you. I was like, we do that? Yeah, we don't. No. <laughs> she made us sound so much better than we actually are. And every time I'm having a bad day, now I'm going to go to our Wikipedia page and just read about myself and be like, fuck. Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm really, <laughs> I'm doing something. Uh, and also want to shout out people like Phil, who are constantly in our Twitter mentions promoting us yeah. to anyone on Twitter who says, hey, recommend me a podcast. There's a lot of you guys <laughs> that just spam people saying, listen to at Let's Get Haunted. And we we definitely notice. We so appreciate it. Yeah. At this point, Phil is an employee of ours, <laughs> yeah. I have to say. So thank you, Phil. Thank you so much. And last but not least, I did want to talk about personal hauntings until I do you have any personal hauntings oh my god well you go first okay what do you have I have a positive haunting uh I just wanted to say that April is Sjogren's syndrome awareness awareness month which if you didn't know is one of the autoimmune diseases I have so I just wanted to take the time to wish a very happy 420 to all of our listeners out there with Sjogren's lupus rheumatoid arthritis any other autoimmune disease lgh part of our community is about taking those negative hauntings autoimmune disease fucking sucks <laughs> and then just get really high or really drunk and listen to this podcast okay that's not what you should do <laughs> if you have um any of those like Look, diagnoses your, that's gonna make it 100 percent worse get your robe on 
buckle the fuck up. <laughs> Go into your closet. Listen to this podcast. I haven't smoked weed, speaking of 420, in such a long time. Oh, no, me neither. I'm because, a fraud. Yeah. Well, because I just feel like I get so anxious and I'm just, I can't vibe. Like, I'm just not chill. I'm not cool anymore. I don't know what what the deal was because in college I could smoke weed. Like, it was my fucking business. <laughs> and now I, like, just can't hang at all. I, maybe it's just getting older. I don't know what happens. But some people get older and they can just smoke more weed. And like my brother, like, he doesn't even affect him. Well, well, I would like to point out that you are extremely pregnant, so it's probably <laughs> that could be part of it. If you guys didn't know, Natalia's due date is coming up quick on May 2nd, but she could go into labor at any time and give birth to a full humanoid Yeah, right now. I'm really hoping to go into labor on 420 because I just feel like <laughs> that would just make it Bring just it full circle. Great. Yeah. 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 Well, do you have any positive or negative hauntings you want to share before we get into this deep fucking fried meme of an episode that I've prepared? Mm, I'm so interested to get into this episode. I I don't have any like negative hauntings or positive hauntings right now. You're the, just chilling. I'm just chilling. Yeah. Something's going to happen soon, guys. Yeah. it's it's. But I don't know what it is yet. Well, maybe what's going to happen to you is this story I'm about to tell you because this story may change your life forever and the way what? that you view our world forever. So I'm very excited what? to get started. Is this a simulation episode? Mm, I can't tell you, as you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you will find out in due time because I'm going to start telling you right now. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm buckled up. Are you pumped? I'm super pumped. I'm also scared because Alyssa's looking directly into my <laughs> eyes right now. She's like four feet away from me, guys. And I like I haven't been this close to her in a long time when she's telling the story. So bear with me. Okay, let's everyone together, let's take a collective deep breath. Okay. All right, guys. In honor of 420 and episode 69, I have prepared for you today a very crunchy, super deep fried alien conspiracy episode. So I highly recommend that anyone listening grab a drink or some <laughs> CBD or some Benadryl or hyperventilate first or something because none of this makes any fucking sense and I think that if you're under the influence it'll be better and maybe together we can all unlock what this story is trying to tell us oh no and if you could have seen me researching this episode it was exactly the meme of that guy from Ancient Aliens right and with he's his just hair like, aliens yeah my hair was like going yeah. everywhere I had ants crawling over me because as you guys <laughs> know we have an ant problem at my house and I lost my mind so as usual Natalia so it's I, gonna be good I think so but I'm biased I begin this episode with a question oh god Natalia no what <laughs> what have you ever heard of Russia's Valley of Death hmm no. Wait, is that where the Dyatlov Pass hiker stuff happened? Good guess. No, that would be the Earl Mountains. Okay. Wait, you said the, the Valley of Death? Mm-hmm. No, I haven't heard of it. It sounds pretty bad. It's pretty bad. So one of the reasons why this story is so confusing and mystical is because there are actually two death valleys in Russia. And if you Google the phrase Russia Death Valley, the wrong one comes up first. And basically what I'm telling you is that I spent two hours researching the wrong death valley before <laughs> I realized my mistake. And the death valley that this story is centered around is considered an unofficial death valley, quote unquote. And many people think that the reason for this lack of research and publicity for this area is directly related to a Russian government cover up. 
Wait, why is it called Death Valley? Because I know the Death Valley in California is called Death Valley because supposedly nothing can live there because it's super hot or something. It's a desert. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've ever heard of Death Valley, a lot of our listeners are from the U.S. A lot of them are from California. It is not the equivalent of our Death Valley. Our Death Valley is called that because it is just a barren desert land and you really can't survive there as a human. It's a fucking cool name, though. It's really fucking cool. cool. It's metal as fuck. It's pretty metal. And going back to Russia's Death Valley, (laughs) though, many think that our understanding of life on Earth as we know it would forever be shattered if the story of Russia's unofficial Valley of Death were to ever reach mainstream news. And in order to make this episode as easy to follow as possible, Mm -hmm. I'm breaking it into a couple of different parts. So first, I'm going to very briefly discuss the geography of Russia so that we can figure out where these Death Valleys are located. Then I'm going to very briefly discuss Russia's official Death Valley that I accidentally spent two hours researching before I realized it was the wrong one because I wrote a couple paragraphs and I was like, I'm not going (laughs) to scrap this. Third, I'm going to tell you the tale of the unofficial Death Valley, and then we're going to go over the theories, and Natalia's going to tell me what she believes. Wait, can I make a hypothesis right now? Yeah, make a hypothesis. I'm going to go ahead and guess that the uh, uh, official Death Valley in Russia is actually just a sham to draw attention away from the haunted Death Valley that you're going to tell me about. That is an excellent, excellent hypothesis. If you guys are listening to this on SoundCloud, go ahead and stop pause the episode right now and leave a comment telling us what you think Russia's Death Valley is all about. Or you can go to Twitter or Instagram at Let's Get Haunted and do the same thing. Okay. Is everyone on pause now? Is everyone ready to buckle the fuck up for this one? I'm ready. Go. Okay. Part one, Russian geography. Oh, God. (laughs) Natalia's like rolling her eyes at me. Okay. (laughs) Russia is the largest country in the world, occupying one-tenth of all land on Earth. It is so massive that it has coasts on three different oceans, the Pacific, the Atlantic, and the Arctic. And it spans 11 different time zones and two different continents, Europe and Asia. And due to its expansive landmass, the Russian landscape is vastly different as you travel across the country. Some regions experience humid, almost tropical climates, while others display cold subarctic conditions, and still others consist of dry deserts or empty tundra. And much of Russia consists of barren plains called steppes. But in Siberia, which occupies about three quarters of Russia, it's dominated by sprawling pine forests called taigas. And I promise this is important later. Mm. While many countries consist of states or provinces, Russia itself is divided into 85 federal subjects, which can then be further divided into different classes known as republics, oblasts, territories, which are also known as krais and autonomous districts. Part two. See, I told you it would be fast. Part two. Russia's official Death Valley that I accidentally researched. On the furthest eastern edge of Russia, dangling (laughs) high above Japan in the Pacific Ocean, juts the 777-mile-long Kamchatka Peninsula. I'm going to say that one more time. Kamchatka Peninsula. (laughs) Politically, the peninsula forms part of the federal subject of Kamchatka Krai, Roughly the size of California, but with a population of only 322,000, Kamchatka was shrouded in military secrecy prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm. The reason for the secrecy was Kamchatka's location. 
The peninsula mm. was just far east enough to eavesdrop on the United States during the Cold War. What? So they were yes. spying on us from Kamchatka? Yes, they were. And the first thing I thought of when I read this is remember how everyone was clowning on Sarah Palin because she lived in Alaska and she was like, I can, I can see, see Russia. Russia from my house. Right. You, you actually can see Russia from this one little place in Alaska. And I did not know that. Then why were we making so much fun? Well, I don't think she lives in that particular place oh. in Alaska. <laughs> but still, I was very interested to know that in this particular peninsula in Russia, they were close enough to be able to eavesdrop on the U.S. Okay, I know this has nothing to do with anything, but I can't stop thinking about this. So I'm wondering Go if someone it. else is thinking about this. Russia occupies one-tenth of the land on Earth? Thank you. Okay, I knew it was big. I, we have a lot of listeners from Europe that are much better at geography than Americans. So I'm sure that they're making fun of us right now. Right. But I knew it was big, but I didn't know it was that big. Right. That seems like really unfair. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should divide some of that shit up. Right. I don't know. It's just also like, how do you even govern a land that expansive? I don't understand. I don't even know. But I, I feel like people who, I feel like, first of all, a lot of cool things come out of Russia. One, I love Russia. Siberian Huskies, like my dog. Very true. And then two, other, those people what do you call those people that dance they like get down on the ground uh, and cross Russians? their arms yeah <laughs> the Russian dancers are sick yeah yeah super super dope okay. also we have some Russian listeners so I hope I do this episode justice for you guys okay so Kamchatka Peninsula like I said shrouded in mystery mm -hmm. during the Cold War but the mystique surrounding Kamchatka extends far beyond the Cold War in an article published to Atlas Obscura, author Robin George Andrews writes, quote, The Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia's Far East is a volcanic winter wonderland. Snow blankets a chain of eruptive mountains here that shower the land with molten fireworks. It is as beautiful as it is biodiverse, with a myriad of aquatic, aerial, and terrestrial species. But there's lethal trouble in this chilly paradise. In one of its smaller valleys, animals wander in but not out. No. When the snow melts, various critters, from hares to birds, appear in search of food and water. Many die soon thereafter. No. Predatory scavengers such as wolverines spot an easy dinner. They slink or swoop into the valley only to die themselves. From lynxes to foxes, eagles to bears, this 1.2 mile long trough has claimed innumerable victims. But the killer here is a phantom. The dead, whose corpses are naturally refrigerated and preserved, show no trace of external injuries or diseases that would be responsible for their expirations. Vladimir Leonov, a volcanologist at Russia's Institute of Volcanology and Seismology. What the fuck is volcanology? It's the study of volcanoes, Natalia. Keep up here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't be the only one who was wondering that. <laughs> Who's recognized by his colleagues as the site's discoverer, identified the cause of death when he first came across the site in 1975. It's the result of a volcanic phenomenon, a common gas that nearly everyone is familiar with. But when the forensic science has long been clear, unconfirmed stories about the place still abound. Some claim, for instance, that animal corpses are regularly removed from the valley, though no one can say by whom. What? Another mystery dates back to the mid-1970s. Victor Deryagin, a student of Leonov's who helped his instructor discover the valley, says that Soviet military officials alerted to the valley's existence, arrived in a helicopter, took some strange samples, and quickly departed. What did they gather and conclude? 
Welcome to the Valley of Death, a site that remains as darkly enchanting and as lethal as it was when it was first discovered only 44 years ago. So this is the Valley of Death that we're actually talking about right now. No, this is the Valley is of the Death f- I accidentally researched. The reason why... <laughs> no, no, no. Let me tell you the reason. When people talk about the unofficial Valley of Death, they're talking about this very specific conspiracy theory. But people get confused because they'll Google Russia's Valley of Death, read about this right. one, and mistakenly combine these two theories together. Okay. And that irritates me because we're all about research on right. Let's Get Haunted. I know. And then people are going to be DMing us and they're going to be like, listen to what I found out about the Valley of Death. And you're going to write and a I'm really like, long no, response. I'm about like, I read about it. It's the wrong Valley of Death. <laughs> But let me continue to tell you about this wrong valley of death for just a few minutes longer. Thank you. While many parts of Kamchatka are open to tourists, including one nature reserve that contains active volcanoes and geysers, the valley of death is one place that is entirely off limits. Described as a land that is, quote, cursed by nature, the valley of death is described as a long, deep depression in the earth covered in snow and the footsteps of both predators and prey that appear to be disoriented and confused. Mm. Dizzying, swaying footsteps of bears, rabbits, and birds lead to piles of animal corpses lying lifeless at the bottom of the valley. Researchers who have visited the area also report experiencing painful lung cramps, headaches, wooziness, dizziness, and even coughing up blood that only abates by climbing quickly out of the depression into the windswept peaks at its border. During one particular visit, a researcher made note of 20 dead foxes, dozens of dead ravens, and over 100 dead partridges. Upon further examination of the corpses, it was noted that their hearts often lacked blood, but their lungs were full of it, meaning that the animals asphyxiated to death within the valley. Oh, my God. Okay, enough with this. This is so Although mean. Although this may seem an eerie and mysterious <laughs> sight, upon further scientific examination, the invisible killer is actually quite simple. Carbon dioxide is denser than air, and when it emerges from the ground, it pools in the valley's dips. Small animals, attracted by the available vegetation in warmer months, then breathe in the carbon dioxide and die. The corpses of smaller prey later attract larger and larger predators, such as foxes, wolverines, and bears, and those larger predators are quickly met with the same fate. So this is the brief story of Russia's Death Valley located on the easternmost side of the country. Like I said, if you Google Russia Valley of Death, this is the location that will pop up first. It is incorrect. Because of this, many people intending to find information on Russia's paranormal Valley of Death mistakenly confuse the two regions and then try to say that volcanoes are haunted, leading to theories that Russia's government is purposefully making it harder to find out information about the area I'm about to tell you about. So okay. like you said. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, I want to say someone once like jokingly said about Alyssa that that she always tries to show people dead bodies in in her Instagram posts. You misquote and... that person all the time. They were talking about the episode where you posted dead bodies in that sunken HMS terror ship. No, they weren't. Yes, they, they were. They were talking about the spontaneous combustion episode. Well, guys, I don't know. We both show dead bodies on this show. So I just want to say, if this beginning of this Instagram photo dump is a bunch of dead animals, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> Look, I'm making no promises. I know we have a lot of vegetarians on this show. I don't think I'm going to be showing any dead animal corpses, but I really can't make any promises. And Natalia, before we go on to what this story is actually about, yes. I just want to show you a map 
of oh, Russia. Lovely. So Thank you. If you can describe to people where Kamchatka Peninsula is located, all right. Well, it's the first of one. all, this requires that you know what Russia looks like, which I don't really. But <laughs> <laughs> it's like a big mass of land above China is how I remember it. And then this Kamchatka uh, Peninsula is up in the top right-hand corner, so that would make it like the northeastern corner of Russia, mm-hmm. even though there's no Correct. corners. Correct. Just blob. Yeah. Okay. I Excellent. keep thinking of that song that's like, um, Ras- what, what is that Russian song that's out right now that's like viral? It's like, <laughs> and his eyes are made of gold. I have no idea. He's a big, strong man from Russia. God, fuck. <laughs> Someone knows what song I'm talking about. It's like, is it Rasputin? I, you sound insane right he now. He was big and strong and his eyes were made of gold. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? How does it go? Like that? Okay, great. You guys, if you're confused about who Natalia is talking to right now, (laughs) like we said, we're recording in a studio right now, which we haven't done in forever, and we have two people making sure that our audio doesn't drop out, which is such an upgrade from what we normally do. it honestly is. I feel very famous. We don't have to save every 30 minutes anymore. (laughs) Okay, now I'm going to show you a map of where the actual unofficial Death Valley is, and you can compare it to the Kamchatka Peninsula and explain it to people. Oh, okay, yeah. The Kamchatka Peninsula is fucking doesn't even exist compared to this other Death Valley. (laughs) This other Death Valley is like one-fifth of Russia's landmass. How is that even a valley? So the one that Alyssa, the real Death Valley that we're about to talk about is a huge, like a huge piece of land where the faked Death Valley where all the dead animals are (laughs) is like a very small peninsula. Exactly. Okay. Thank you for that. So now we move on to part three. Oh, lovely. I'm really glad that this has chapters here because I feel like I'm progressing ahead and I'm learning. Yeah. And then you don't, I don't know. Sometimes when you're listening to a story, you're like, are we fucking done yet? Like, how much (laughs) is there? So I promise this story only has four parts. We are moving into the largest of those, which is part three, Mm -hmm. Russia's unofficial valley of death. To the west of the Kamchatka Peninsula, but still located in the far eastern region of Russia, the Republic of Saka, also known as Yakutia, is home to just under a million inhabitants. Historically part of Siberia, the majority of citizens of Yakutia are either ethnic Saka, also known as Yakuts, or Russians. The official language of the region are Russian and Saka, which is the language of the native Yakut people. Geographically, Saka can be divided into three vegetation belts. About 40% of Saka lies above the Arctic Circle and is therefore covered completely by permafrost. Saka's middle region is characterized by Arctic and subarctic tundra, where pastures of green lichen and moss provide grazing grounds for reindeer. Mm. In the southern part of the tundra belt, a smattering of dwarf Siberian pine and larch trees grow alongside the region's many rivers. Below the tundra, the vast taiga forest expands as far as the eye can see. In terms of vegetation, large trees dominate in the north, while fir and pine trees don't begin to appear until you venture further south. Taiga forests cover about 47% of Yakutia, and almost 90% of the cover is larch. So I'm going to be using... What's larch? Larch is just... It's a fucking tree. I'll show you. (laughs) I will show you right now, because I did look it up too. It's very pretty. It is... So you're telling me that this Death Valley is basically made of these 
oh yeah well yeah it's a tree whatever yeah it's a fucking it's like a yellowish greenish (laughs) tree it's very pretty i'm not trying to undermine this tree um so you're telling me to recap that that these taiga forest is like a type of like economic why am i saying economical What's the word I'm it's, looking for? It's a... It's not an economy. It's, it's an a ecosystem. Yeah, it's an ecosystem. <laughs> it's a, Look, there were so many different phrases that right. I found on nationalgeographic.com while researching <laughs> this. I also went to the children's section of National Geographic. That's which, where I need to be. Oh, my God. It does such a good job of just so, being like, it's a tree. It's a rain. Fo- it's a reindeer forest. Uh, Yeah, essentially. Okay. Yeah. I like that. I like that, too. It's like Santa's in this area. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to be using the terms Sokka and Yakutia interchangeably. I'm not quite sure which one would be the politically correct term. I think that Russia, the government refers to it as Sokka, but Yakutia is home to the Yakut people, so I'm not Mm. sure which one I should be using, so I'm going to use them both interchangeably. But it's the same place. Okay. Okay. Sokka is also home to a plethora of rivers and lakes. The largest river is the Lena River. Flowing for nearly 3,000 miles into the Arctic Ocean, the Lena branches off into hundreds of small tributaries as it moves northward. Other rivers in the region include the Olenyak, the Kolyma, the Indigurka, the Alizeya, the Anabar, and the Yana. And as far as lakes go, there are over 800,000 lakes and reservoirs that dot the vast Republic of Yakutia, including a massive salt lake known as the Mogotoyevo. And several impressive mountain ranges also stretch through Saka, including ranges that form part of the East Siberian Mountains. And all of these beautiful natural features make for a region that is very rich in raw materials. The soil contains large reserves of oil, gas, coal, diamonds, gold, silver, tin, tungsten, Mm -hmm. just to name a few. And in fact, 99% of all Russian diamonds and over 25% of all the diamonds mined in the world come from this very region. Wow. But the beauty of Sokka provides a foil to the extreme weather conditions experienced in the region. Some of the lowest natural temperatures ever recorded in modern history have occurred in this very area, with temperatures reaching negative 90 degrees Fahrenheit in 1892 and negative 96.2 degrees Fahrenheit in 1924. Wow. Its low temperatures have contributed to some incredible archaeological finds over the years, including the frozen bodies of ancient lion cubs, woolly mammoths, and woolly rhinoceri preserved in the permafrost. And as far as early civilization goes, the Turkic Saka people, or Yakuts, were thought to have settled in the area as early as the 9th century, or possibly as late as the 16th century, with several waves of migration making up the middle. And it is thought that several smaller indigenous populations of reindeer hunters and herders, known as the Paleo-Siberians and Tunguskic, were then absorbed into the Yakuts by the 17th century. And unfortunately, this culturally rich region underwent several wars and uprisings, including the famous Yakut Revolt, as Russian colonialism sought to gain control over Sokka and assimilate it into Russian culture. And many important Sokka leaders were murdered in an ethnic cleansing carried out by Stalin during something called the Great Purge of 1937. As a result, many Sokka traditions and histories have been lost or repressed through forced assimilation and genocide, though today many Yakut fortunately still carry on their traditions to keep their culture alive. Mm. So, Natalia, I'm going to show you some photos of the Yakut people, and I'm also going to going to show you a video of some members of the 
uh, Yakut people, because I don't know if you remember on Twitter a couple years ago, some people might be familiar with a video that went viral of some y- indigenous Yakut people throat singing. Do you mm. remember that? So it's no, like, I've sh- heard throat singing, yeah. though, because there's a bunch of different crazy. cultures that do throat singing. Exactly. Yeah. And it's pretty wild if you've never heard it before. Super wild. So I'm going to show you a quick little video. I just kind of want get to people to get a taste of what this culture is like, because so often on our show, we talk about all of these negative hauntings. And so that's why we try to bring in some positive socio-historical context to these stories. Wow. So that whistle tone that you're hearing is a dude. This dude is yeah, that's coming two, from his throat. These are two guys. And this is like a very Russian thing I'm looking at. They're just in front of a frozen river that's behind them. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So you can pause it at any time. You get the yeah, idea. Yeah, that's wild. I could never. I don't have any sort of talent like that. No, we have no range, as you guys know on this show. All we can really do is regurgitate Wikipedia to you. And even that is questionable <laughs> about the quality. So I'm also going to show you a couple of photos of the Yakut people. Very, very beautiful traditional attire. And you can just oh, click wow. through. There's a couple Oh, this is it. beautiful. Yeah, this is really cool. Okay, so I'm looking at... Um... Let me swing this around. Here, I can unplug this. So I'm looking at what looks like uh, some sort of traditional folk dance, I'm going to assume. Mm-hmm. And um, there are, in the in the photo that I'm looking at, I can only see female dancers. So I'm going to assume that it's just female dancing. And then there's like males with the, what looks like a big cover, like a big drum of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're wearing, yeah, like these awesome, maybe that's reindeer pelt, I'm going to assume. Could too. be. Yeah, like these dresses. It looks very cool, like intricately beaded and and some sort of um yeah like a like a suede or like a leather sort of trim um where's the next photo if you just exit it it'll be right behind it okay we're doing it that way Mm -hmm. yeah so that looks really cool oh yeah this is beautiful and then there's another photo of two women and um gosh i don't i've never seen this i don't know how to describe this okay so they have um what i'm assuming is like traditional garb on it's it's like a yellow dress with red um a red collar and then they've got a hood that has like it comes to a point on the end of this hood almost like a hat but it's like attached to the hood and then um like silver headdress and silver like all kinds of like accents it's very stunning it's yeah it's absolutely beautiful these people are beautiful yeah and then here's another photo like intricately um beaded like i want to it's i want to say it's a hat it's a cap of some sort um yeah very very beautiful and if you guys want to see any of the photos or videos that we will be talking about today as usual you can go to at let's get haunted on instagram and all of these assets will be posted there Okay, so before the arrival of the Russian Empire, which forced the religious conversion to Russian Orthodox, 
the majority of the local population of Yakutia practice something called Tengrism, which is described as a religion based on folk shamanism centered around the sky god Tengri. Mm. Despite the forced conversion efforts of the Russian Empire, many locals of Yakutia still invite shamans to carry out their rites in connection with weddings, funerals, or other important life events. Mm. And a survey in 2012 revealed that while Russian Orthodox was the most popular religion of the region, the second most popular to this day is still Tengrism or Saka shamanism. Mm. And then the last thing I want to show you about this area is this YouTube channel I found called Life in Yakutia by a native Yakut woman. If anyone's interested in learning more about this area, it's a channel run by this woman named Maria, and she posts videos showcasing her day-to-day -day life in Yakutia. And they're really interesting. It's like shows her ice fishing mm. or shows her like weaving an, a traditional basket. And this video I want to show you, um, you only have to watch the first few seconds because I... Oh, let me pause that. Because I just want you to see what this area looks like outside. Okay. I can't believe it gets to negative 90 degrees Fahrenheit. That's what I'm saying. It's I crazy. Can't, like, even... So just hit the space bar. How does anything play. survive? I guess it doesn't. Steph Valley. Okay. Is this during the day? Yes. Okay. I'm just going to go ahead and say what everyone's thinking. This place looks like it really sucks to live in. <laughs> and it's like it's supposed to be daytime, but it's really dark there. It looks like it's really hard life compared to those photos you showed me of people like wearing these fun, colorful dresses and dancing right. around. That was like a stark difference. That looks like just... I, I don't even know. Like, it's it looks intense. You would have to be a very hardy person. person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now I want to focus on the northeast Siberian taiga, which is considered one of the largest unaltered boreal forest areas in the whole entire world. And the majority of this forested area is located within the borders of the Republic of Yakutia. And across all sources I read in my research, two adjectives come up over and over again to describe this area, which actually we just kind of used one of them, harsh mm. and remote. Mm. And more than 100,000 square kilometers of western Yakutia are completely uninhabited due to the harshness of this unforgiving landscape. And prior to the 19th century, much of Russia's Far East and Siberia were unexplored by Russians and were therefore considered a mystery. Few were brave enough to venture from the comforts of major cities like St. Petersburg and Moscow into the vast, frozen, and largely uninhabited forests of Yakutia. That is, until Richard Otto Mack, a Russian geographer and anthropologist, decided to embark upon an exploration of several of the region's river valleys. During the 1850s, he undertook a number of expeditions to Siberia, cataloging plants, animals, and encounters with local indigenous people along the way. While conventional history remembers him most for his discovery of several previously unknown trees and plants, unconventional history remembers him for the strange tales told to him by locals, which he recorded in his notebook along his many journeys. What are they? One tale in particular tells of a remote area of the Siberian taiga referred to by locals as El Yuyu Cherkeche or 
Ului Cherkechek, which loosely translates to the Valley of Death. Mm. The exact coordinates of this valley are unknown, but most sources agree that it is somewhere near the basin of the Villeneuve River. According to legend, Richard Mack began to notice a common theme as he cataloged the area's natural landmarks. The word cauldron kept coming up over and over. For example, one of the rivers had been named Olguyadak by locals, which means a place with cauldrons. What? Another stream was called Algij Temirnit, which roughly translates to the big cauldron sunk. Does cauldron mean to them what it means to us? Because when I think of a cauldron, I think of like a witch's brewing something in like this big pot. Yeah, a cauldron definitely means a pot in their region. Some translations I saw of this also translated it to boiler, quote Mm. unquote, like a large pot that you would cook things inside. Right. That's weird since it's such a cold area. Like there can't be anything natural that's like a boiling pot there. So... Are there, like, just a bunch of witches, like, boiling things? Hmm. Very interesting that you would say that. So, Mac began to ask locals what the reason behind these peculiar names was. Because just like you, he's like, why is this river called a place with cauldrons? Why is this valley called a place with cauldrons? Like, what is the logic behind this? And as he interviewed more and more people, he got variations of the exact same answer. Nomadic hunters well-traveled in the Siberian taiga told Richard Mack stories about finding giant red domes during their hunting expeditions that were half-submerged into the earth. What? These domes were also described as saucers, cauldrons, or boilers that were sticking out of the mossy ground at an angle, creating the illusion of a small hill on one side and an open cave on the other. What? According to the hunters, these cauldrons appeared to be forged from an unknown metal, copper-like in color, which gave off a reddish appearance, but with edges as sharp as razors. The metal was said to be so hard that no one who had attempted to break off a piece had been able to do so, not even with sophisticated hunting tools. Although temperatures in the Siberian taiga were below freezing almost year-round, Hunters that sought shelter inside the domes from the whipping winds and icy snow found the temperatures inside to be warm and pleasant. Mm. Because of the temperature difference, upon first discovery, the hunters would be enticed to enter the shelter. However, the unfortunate souls who entered the domes were said to never survive for long after. A few minutes after entering the dome, the unsuspecting victim would first be struck with a dizzying vertigo. Unable to tell which way was up or down, the victim would fall to his knees, struck almost immediately by an uncontrollable nausea and splitting headache, giving the sensation that the victim's skull was being cracked in half. Disoriented and terrified, the victim would then either perish beneath the cauldron or wander deep into the taiga, never to be seen again. As more and more hunters began to disappear after visiting the Valley of the Copper Cauldrons, native elders decided that action must be taken and forbade any person from entering the cursed region, leading to its name of the Valley of Death. What? Okay, so uh, it has to be some sort of like nauseous gas or something in there. But then the question is, why would someone try to harness that? Well, uh, 
the thing, the reason why I wanted to bring up that there are two different Death Valleys is because the first Death Valley I talked about does have no noxious gas inside right. of it. It has all of these volcanic, active volcanoes that are spewing out different noxious gases, including carbon dioxide, which, as we just learned at the first part of this podcast, settles mm -hmm. because it's more dense than air. Right. So when people are seeking to explain away this phenomenon right. and then they Google it, they'll be like, oh, these the conspiracy theorists are so dumb. They don't realize yeah. that there's volcanoes. There are not volcanoes in this region. OK, so then no one knows who put these cauldrons anywhere. So we're going to get into some of the theories surrounding who could have left these cauldrons? So legends of explorers and hunters accidentally discovering these cauldrons or domes persisted for years. One hunter who encountered a dome and survived the ordeal reported that deep at the back of the structure, he discovered a long, winding set of stairs leading <gasps> deep into the earth. No! Did he go down there? Looking down into the stairwell, he could see what he perceived to be a circular metal room with doors along the edges. No, fuck that. That's going straight to hell. I would never he, go there. He quickly backed out of the dome and journeyed back back into town where he relayed his message. And I'm going to show you a sketch that this man allegedly drew while explaining to people what he saw. That is absolutely terrifying. I would just assume that there's like people down there waiting for you and they're going to eat you or something. Okay, I'm looking at this sketch. Wow, this is scary. Um, okay, yeah, so the dome is how do you I don't even how do I describe this there's a hole on the surface of the snow and then it goes straight down like a tunnel and then you when you get into the tunnel you see and it, and it opens up there's like a bunch of arched archways and then like a larger dome but the whole thing it's like three domes in one yeah, it's crazy because at above the ground level, it just looks like how they described it, a hill on one side and a cave yeah. on the other. But as you go down into this winding staircase, you're in this like very clearly man-made metal room. Right. And it's and it's huge compared to there's like a little person in the bottom of it. So for scale, it's probably like 30 feet high or something like that because mm -hmm. it's like uh, four times as high as that person, assuming that they're like, I don't know an average height but that's so weird that that means that somebody had to dig that space out and get whatever like material that no one knows what it is exactly and build it there one person couldn't build that by himself it would have to be a bunch of people and it's like metal so it's not you would have to have heat to work with it and yeah it's really weird really bizarre and the story gets even weirder another yakut hunter stumbled upon a cauldron while tracking an elk he reported hearing a deep rumbling from inside the structure. As he got closer, the rumbling became louder and louder until the noise drowned out all thoughts in the hunter's head. As if transfixed, he entered the shadow of the dome and came across what he described as a giant cyclops-like creature, clad in metal and fast asleep. Able to snap out of the spell, the hunter quickly turned on his heel and ran from the saucer, only stopping when he was several miles away. What? No. Okay, hold on. You can't just say that and act <laughs> like everything's fine. There's a cyclops wearing... It's hey, a... that is what the hunter described it as. Uh, okay. He said he saw a man... With one Com eye. Completely covered in metal armor, asleep on the ground, snoring loudly, 
and he had one giant eye in the center of, of his, his forehead. forehead. That's how he described it. And when was this supposedly? Uh, the 1800s. What? Okay. Okay. I have to hear more because... Well, lucky for you, I have more for you. In his notes from 1853, the Russian explorer Mack himself wrote that he encountered a giant copper cauldron while exploring the bank of the Algi Timurbit River. He sketched a drawing of the object and wrote the following, quote, Its magnitude is unknown since only the edge is visible above the ground and several trees are growing on top of it. Mack documented these tales in his logbook as he extensively explored the Siberian taiga, but the scholars and scientists funding his expedition did not take any interest in the cauldron stories, chalking them up to be local superstitions or exaggerated folk tales. As time went on, more and more scientists and travelers began to venture into the Siberian taiga. In 1936, a geologist reported finding a cauldron, mostly submerged, near the bank of the Olguidak River. His description mirrors those of 1800s hunters and Richard Mack. According to kpufo.eu, the description was given as follows, <laughs> quote, A smooth metal hemisphere with razor-sharp edges and reddish in color protruded from the ground. Its walls were about two centimeters thick. Barely a fifth of it was above the ground, but the opening in the dome vault was accessible by a person sitting on a reindeer. The geologist allegedly reported his findings to the capital city of Yakutsk. But again, no one of importance seemed interested in funding any efforts to examine these structures. A young girl named Zina, traveling through the taiga with her grandfather Savinov in the 1930s, reported taking shelter under one of the cauldrons during a snowstorm. She described it as a perfectly formed bowl, half buried in the swamp, smooth to the touch and made of an odd metallic material that had a reddish glow to it. According to a, a documented account written by Zena, her grandfather, quote, led her to a small, slightly flattened reddish arch where began a spiral staircase and several metal rooms. There we spent the night. As my grandfather assured, even in the most severe frost, the rooms felt warm, like in summer. They spent the night in that? They went down the spiral staircase and spent the night in this Why? metal vault. Because there was a storm out. And they, and they yeah, couldn't they continue no on. I mean, imagine negative 96 degree weather and you're just in a vast right. taiga forest. These things sound like a trap. It sounds like they're trying to trap humans in there so Cyclops man can <laughs> eat him. I, I agree with you. And another documented report of the copper cauldrons came in the 1950s from a man named Mikhail Koretsky, who wrote into the Russian newspaper Trud about what he had witnessed during his time in the Siberian taiga. According to Koretsky, he had visited the Valley of Death a total of three times during his lifetime. The first time was when he was only 10 years old in 1933. The second time was in 1937 at age 14. And the third time was 10 years later in 1947 at age 24. The first two times Koretsky was taken to the Valley of Death by his hunter father. Together, they witnessed several copper domes protruding from the Earth's surface but his father would never allow him to venture too close to the objects. The third time, Koretsky was well into adulthood and decided to take a few friends with him to see if they could find the domes he had seen in his childhood. They reportedly discovered a total of seven cauldrons measuring 19 to 30 feet across, surrounded by vegetation that seemed oddly unnatural. 
The Siberian taiga was known for its thick layer of permafrost that allowed the growth of only the hardiest of plants, but surrounding each dome appeared to be a giant burdock leaves and odd grass not native to the region which grew taller than any of the explorers themselves. Koretsky and his friends dared each other to sleep under the cauldrons together as a way of testing the local legends which warned of dizzying sicknesses and death. According to Koretsky's account, they awoke the next day without anything happening to any of them. They all made their way home, thinking to themselves that while the structures were indeed mysterious, the warnings given to them growing up must have all been exaggerations. However, a month after the visit, one of the men who had slept under the dome with Koretsky lost all of his hair overnight, and two small boils that never healed appeared on the cheek Koretsky had slept on. What? An excerpt from a letter written by Koretsky is located in the archives of the National Library of the Republic of Yakutia, translated to English by a website called iia-rf.ru. A section of the letter reads as follows: quote, "I saw seven of these cauldrons. All of them seemed to me completely mysterious. Firstly, the size is from six to nine meters in diameter. Secondly, they are made of an incomprehensible material." The fact that not even a sharpened chisel does not take these boilers apart. We tried it, and more than once. Metal is not broken off or forged. Even on steel, a hammer would definitely leave noticeable dents. And this metal is covered with a layer of unknown material, perhaps similar to emery? I noted that the vegetation around the cauldrons is also abnormal, not at all like what is growing around it. It is more lush, large-leaf burdocks, very long vines, strange grass, one and a half to two times taller than humans. In one of these cauldrons, we spent the night with the whole group, about six of us. No one afterwards was seriously ill. Unlike one of my acquaintances completely lost all hair after three months. And on the left side of my head, the side I slept on, there were three small sores the size of a match head. I have treated them all my life, but they have not passed. All our attempts to break off at least a piece from the strange cauldrons as proof of their existence have not been successful. The only thing I managed to carry away was a stone, but not simple, half of an ideal ball with a diameter of six centimeters. It was black in color, had no visible traces of processing, but was very smooth, as if polished. I lifted it from the ground inside one of these cauldrons. I brought this souvenir with me to the village of Samarka Chugievsky, district of Primorsky Krai, where my parents lived in 1933. It lay idle until the grandmother decided to rebuild the house. It was necessary to insert glass into the windows, and there was no glass cutter in the whole village. I tried to scratch the halves of this stone ball with an edge, and it turned out that it cuts with amazingly beauty and ease so obviously some of this is a little bit broken English because it's been translated Whoa. from Russian so they discovered this stone in there that maybe was a tool or something of these cyclops people people what am I saying of the cyclops man <laughs> to cut so maybe that they should have taken that stone and tried to cut the metal of the the cauldron and no, see if a it good would point. cut. Well, I think originally he wasn't expecting it to be a tool because it's just this perfectly spherical black stone. Right. And when you think of something that can cut glass, I don't know about you, I don't think about a spherical black stone. Yeah. But he said when he ran the stone over the glass, it cut. Well, that means it's it's like really hard, right? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I'm not like a 
engineer. Yeah, of not like a glass raw material. Yeah. Okay, so between 1964 and 1967, the Villeux Dam was constructed on the Villeux River to provide hydroelectric power, hydroelectric power to diamond mines in the area. The construction of this dam was a massive feat and was the first object of its type to be built on permafrost. To this day, it is considered to have the coldest operating conditions of any hydroelectric plant in the world. To build this dam, workers had to first lay a branch channel to drain part of this riverbed. During this process, it was reported that a convex metal patch began to surface as the water level receded. Slowly, the water drained from the area completely, and what was described as a, quote, metal boiler half buried in the silt of the riverbed was revealed. Unsure of what to do, the workers summoned authorities to come examine the find. Annoyed that the dam's progress had been halted and would be behind schedule, the authorities reportedly walked around the dome only once before declaring the find as being, quote, nonsense not worthy of attention. The authorities ordered the crew to work around the dome before leaving the area. This object was eventually covered back up by the river once construction of the dam was finished. It was another cauldron? Another cauldron. So now we have an instance of, at first we we only have sightings by the Yakut people, right. these nomadic hunters that are coming through this area to hunt elk and reindeer. Yes. Okay. Then we have this sighting by this Russian uh, anthropologist and botanist who's mm-hmm. going through cataloging all of these plants in the taiga. Now we have these accounts by just random people from the area who had mm-hmm. heard these stories come through, including one guy with his friends. And now we have government officials mm. seeing these items and just saying, ah, cover it back up. We don't care. Like, we don't want to be behind schedule. Right. Well, if I know anything based on this podcast, anytime government officials say something is not worthy of time, it's like the opposite. of. Yeah. <laughs> we need to look at this so much harder. We need to fund another dig to excavate this area right now. Absolutely. Anytime the government tells you that everything is chill, it's probably not. <laughs> So in 1971, so now we're moving into the 70s, an elder hunter of the Evany people was hunting between the Njurgen Buter River and the Atadarik River when he encountered what he described as a, quote, metal hole. The underground metal burrow was so peculiar that he could not resist approaching the structure. Remembering tales of the copper cauldrons that had circulated his hometown for a century, he wondered if this burrow could be one of them. As he got closer to the dome, he could make out movement inside. From the shadows emerged several skinny, one-eyed beings <gasps> in black iron costumes. No, wait. Now I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention enough. Okay, so <laughs> who was this guy? This is so a member of the Evany people, which there are several different groups of people that live in this region. The main one is the Yakuts, okay. but this is a smaller group of people known as the Evany. And he was also a hunter going through the same area. And he sees what he describes as a metal hole in the ground. Right. A cauldron. A cauldron. And he goes in there and there's a... He approaches it. He didn't go inside. He approaches it and he can make out movement inside and from the shadows emerge, quote, several skinny one-eyed beings in black iron costumes how do i not know about this already i i well like how did you find this story all right i found this uh episode because there's a meme that has uh all of the most common um conspiracy theories right 
And it as it goes down the list, it gets more and more based. And so it'll right. like at the very bottom, it's like the most insane tinfoil hat conspiracy yes. theories. And this was one of them. Are you talking about it's like an iceberg? Yes. It's the yes. iceberg meme. Yes. yes. At the very bottom. And the guy's face next to it is like his <laughs> eyes are rolling back and blood's coming out of his mouth. So this was one of them on that list. Oh my God. Isn't this? This insane? is amazing. This is insane. I'm I'm one hundred percent on board. Who are these Cyclops people? Do we kill them? Like, are they bad? Is this aliens? What is this? Why are they here? Why did they choose this particular area? Probably because no one lives there. Yeah, it's the perfect place, right? That it's it's uninhabited. It's only the only people that go into this place are either that random explorer who's yeah. like trying to catalog stuff that nobody's ever cataloged before, right. or these nomadic hunters that are just happen to be passing by because they're hunting an animal that wanders into this valley of death. Mm. So although these creatures were not giants the hunter remembered the tale told by the yakut hunter who had discovered a cyclops in armor sleeping under a dome in the 1800s and thought this must be the descendants of that cyclops the beings did not approach him or speak to him they merely stared at him unblinkingly something within the ebony hunter told him that he should not attempt to come any closer and if, as if in a mutual, unspoken understanding, the hunter walked away from the area as the beings retreated back into their burrow. Right. They're like, we're not going to fuck with you. You're not going to fuck, fuck with, with us. us. You're not going to tell anyone what you saw, even though he did. Right. Like, yeah, exactly. When the hunter made his way back into town, he told everyone he came across about <laughs> what he had seen. And he even offered to take some local scientists back to the exact area. But no one took him up on the offer. It seemed that, yet again, no one was willing to travel into the remote wilderness just to see if a story was true or not. Do we know? Yeah, because they're probably like, that sucks. It's way too cold. I, you I were just hallucinating. believe you. you, I just, yeah, you yeah, were, you were tired and hungry and cold and you saw some, you saw a rock and you thought it was a alien. It's like when you're at a party. I know it's been a long time since anyone's been to a party, but it's like when you're at a party and like someone you don't know comes up to you and starts talking about like something you don't really care about and you're just like You're like, "Cool. I just want to chill. Can you like not try to be my friend right now? I just don't have the energy for yeah. this." Yeah. Like I'm sure people that were listening to him, they were just like, "Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. cool. Right. Great. I'm going back to whatever I was doing before." <laughs> All right. So now we're moving forward in time to 1979. Finally, in mm. 1979, an archaeological expedition to find the cauldrons was officially funded. Oh, thank fuck. The expedition enlisted the help of a local guide who claimed to have seen the cauldrons in his youth. But despite days of searching, the cauldrons could not be located. When the search party came back into town in the capital city of Yakutsk, the explorers reported that the landscape had changed far too much over the past hundred years, with vegetation growing so densely that seeing more than a few feet in front of you was impossible. Mm. In addition, the ground where the domes had been seen over the years was known to be marshy, and many hypothesized that the domes could have been swallowed up over time by the sinking earth, such as in the case of mm. that river that swallowed up right. that one dome. One member of the expedition said that when venturing into the Valley of Death, he experienced fatigue and confusion, leading him to believe that the toxic that toxic gases might be in the area, making it impossible to find the cauldrons. Mm. So one guy's saying um, this particular hunter that decided to lead them into the area yeah. who said he had seen it in his childhood, 
basically says that this vegetation is like far too large we can't it's impossible we can't find it unless we have some sort of craft flying over yeah why can't they just fly a like an airplane over with radar i don't know sonar like fucking dolphin technology to find (laughs) bat technology yeah i don't care what they do but we should be able to do it right well it sounds like nobody wants to fund something like that so like finally they get the funds together just to send out a group of like five explorers into the area with one hunter yeah which like to me does not sound very professional yeah it's just like five dudes that are interested and they find some dude that says he's seen it before and then they go out and they're like oh can't find it and one of the guys from that search party says that he started feeling super confused yeah as soon as he entered the valley of death so he's like maybe there's some sort of toxic gas in this area that's making it even harder for us to find these well maybe that's why these like humanoids have one eye because it's like radioactive or something i don't know could be so it wasn't until the late 1970s that russians and yakutia began documenting the testimonies of local residents and compiling historical accounts of the cauldrons in one place so up until this point the only dude who's written anything is that explorer from the 1850s right everyone everything else has been oral tradition and word of mouth It was at this time that people began to wonder if old Yakut and Ebony legends and beliefs might have anything to do with the origin of these cauldrons. There are a series of heroic epic tales of the Yakuts known as the Olonko. Over 100 epic poems were recorded by Westerners after the Russian conquest of Siberia starting in the 18th century onward. The best-known Olonko is called Nyurgen Buter the Swift, and contains more than 36,000 verses. This epic is considered to be a key part of the Yakutian identity and contains core principles of the Sokka worldview. This principle is the belief that there are three separate worlds. The upper world inhabited by the gods, Mm -hmm. the middle world inhabited by people, and the lower world inhabited by, quote, devils. The epic is translated and summarized as follows. Once an impenetrable haze enveloped the valley, and a deafening roar shook the ground. A hurricane of great strength rose up, and powerful blows shook the earth. Lightning struck the sky in all directions. When the storm ended and the haze cleared away, in the middle of the lightning-scorched earth, a tall, vertical structure shone in the sun, much like a lighthouse, visible from a distance of many days of travel. For a long time, it emitted an unpleasant, loud buzzing and cutting sound. The metal pillar gradually decreased in height until it completely disappeared, swallowed whole by the earth. Whoever sought to find the pillar would never again return and instead be met with a swift death. Over time, the ash left by the lightning strikes restored the vegetation that had been burned away. The fertile soil begat lush plant life and the lush plant life begat lush wildlife. Nomadic hunters in search of prey began to enter the valley while tracking game. Following the animals, a band of hunters from a tribe encountered a tall, domed, iron house resting on supports. That's a cauldron! The the house was curious, as it had no visible windows or doors on its walls. Tall, sleek, and shining, it was impenetrable, and the hunters could find no way inside. Over time, the house plunged deep into the permafrost, and only the arch of a rooftop entrance remained on the surface. This is the cauldron! One day, the ground shook, and a thin, spiraling tornado of fire stretched up into the sky from the cave-like entrance to the house. 
a burning fireball shining at its tip. Four consecutive thunderclaps sounded as the fireball shot down from the tornado, a trail of flames in its wake. As the fireball exploded into the ground in the distance, it exploded into the village of a neighboring tribe. This tribe was known for waging cruel wars on those who lived in the surrounding areas. So while the nomadic hunters who witnessed the attack were afraid, they did not abandon the area. Instead, they viewed this fireball as a demon or spirit that had destroyed their enemies. A few decades later, the ground again shook with great force, and another fireball was launched from atop a tornado that formed from the house's entrance. The fireball soared into the same direction as the time before, once again destroying the surviving descendants of that first warlike tribe. Seeing that this spirit must be protecting them, the nomads nicknamed him Nyurgen Butor and composed legends and songs in his honor. Although the nomads initially praised the demonic fireball for keeping them safe, the praise would be short-lived. One day, another fireball was shot out from the entrance of the dome. Rather than shoot out towards the warring tribe, this fireball exploded immediately, causing the strongest earthquake the region had ever felt. Mountains were split in half from the explosion, and a fiery sea of water flooded the plains, waves splashing and crashing for hours as it drowned the villages of tribes close by. Suddenly, a disc-shaped object described by the nomads as a, quote, rotating island, hovered above the sea. The tribes on the outskirts of the explosion scattered in different directions in a futile attempt to flee the horrific scene, but over time they all died out from some strange inherited disease which caused boils on their skin and their teeth and hair to fall out. The tower deep within the earth is thought to be a portal from the middle world of humans to the lower world of the devils who live underground and the exploding fireballs that frequented the area were believed to be wars waged between the underground demons and the gods of the upper world. So this okay, is... Okay, aliens. Yeah. I, I see exactly why you said that now. Yeah. The floating island above the sea sounds like a alien. Sounds like sounds a UFO. Like a, yeah. And this is not like some story that is being taken from... like. The, you need to keep in mind this, this is an story comes story. before the cauldrons. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like it sounds like this story is describing the cauldrons. It does. And so that but so a lot of people are kind of starting to look into this for the first time because there's just been so many stories of cauldrons in the area and what are these cauldrons and you find these cauldrons and then you get really sick and you right. die or you get boils on your face, your hair falls out, your teeth falls out. And so people start really looking into this and they find this epic story and they're right. like, wait a minute, this is describing almost exactly what we're seeing in the Valley of Death. Exactly. Except there's no fireballs now. Or maybe there are, but we're just not spending enough time around it to to see that. Right. And and like I said, up until this point, a lot of the, these stories have just been oral tradition. Mm -hmm. So while this epic wasn't written until the 18th century, its origins are hypothesized to be traced back some 1,000 years ago, with one historian arguing it could be traced back even further. Though its origins are ancient, the legend of this mystical underground pillar launching fireballs has persisted well into today. From time to time, witnesses in the area claim to have seen fireballs exploding in the sky, possibly protecting the planet from some otherworldly danger. As proof of this hypothesis, many locals point to the Tunguska event. Do you know? Have you ever heard of the Tunguska I've event? heard of it, but I don't know what it is. Okay, let me find a picture uh, for so you. 
I have so many questions, and I know you probably can't answer any of them, but, like, just tell me, who are these Cyclops people? Like, right. What What do they want? <laughs> I wish I could tell you, Natalia. I feel like this story is going to leave you with more questions yeah. than answers. There's quite a few theories as we get into it. But first, let me just tell you about this Tunguska event, because... To, to the natives of this area, this ties into what is this they're a nu- seeing. Is this a nuclear, like, fallout type thing or no? I'm going to say no, it's not. Because this happened before the invention of um, the atomic bomb. Okay. Okay. So the Tunguska event was a massive explosion that occurred in a remote part of the eastern Siberian taiga on the morning of June 30th, 1908. The explosion was so... That's a fireball! The explosion was so great that an estimated 80 million fucking trees, over 900 square miles of forest, were flattened completely. Surviving witnesses to the event suggest that at least three to five people died as a result of the explosion, although no impact crater has ever been found. The explosion is thought to have been the result of a stony meteoroid 330 feet across, bursting and disintegrating about three to six miles above the Earth's surface. Since the 1908 event, there have been an estimated 1,000 scholarly papers published about this event, and one 2013 publication revealed the results of an analysis of microsamples from a peat bog near the center of the affected area shows fragments that may be of extraterrestrial origin. And when we say extraterrestrial origin, we don't mean aliens. We just mean coming from outer space. Which is aliens. That's Which, where they live. Which, hey, some people think is aliens. So the Tunguska event is actually the largest impact event on earth in recorded modern history right like prior to the extinction like of dinosaurs times. yeah okay. wow so this i i really just want to emphasize i had never heard of this 900 square miles of forest flattened and 80 million trees i don't know what those trees did to these cyclops people but they got fucked up they got fucked the fuck up and let me show you some photos of this event Okay. So I'm just showing you the Google search images for the Tunguska event. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I'm looking at just a giant, well, it's a huge forest, a very thick forest. And then in in the photo, there's just like a huge crater almost of just flattened trees. But it's weird because it's not a crater. It's just flattened. Right. Like normally when you think of a meteor that's hit, because I've seen one, the one in Arizona. I think we went there together. Oh, yeah, yeah. What was that crater? I, I don't remember. Meteor but yeah. City or yeah. something, whatever. No, but, no. <laughs> <laughs> but there was like a giant meteor that hit the Earth, and and it's like, uh, looks like a just a cavern, like a yeah, it's like an a, impact crater. An impact crater. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, I was looking for the word impact crater. But this just looks like flattened, which is which I mean I don't want to you know draw too many conclusions, but if it was a fire ball. I mean, that would flatten, burn away a bunch of those trees. I'm just saying it kind of goes along with this epic legend. And so people are putting these all of these stories together. And according to the survivors of the Tunguska event, a fireball was seen shooting (sighs) out from the forest near where the metal pillar is said to be located. The fireball then collided with the meteoroid before it could touch the earth, disintegrating it into a million smaller pieces. Wait, so the tower is actually confirmed or you're saying where it's said to be located? Where it's said to be located from. Okay, so in this valley of death, people who survived because some people died in this Tunguska event and it covered, like we just read, miles and miles and miles and miles, like millions of 
of trees of territory. Yeah. So there are people all around the edges of this event for, I mean, we just described Russia as being this massive, massive yeah. country. So some of the people that were kind of closer to this Valley of Death described seeing this fireball shoot up from the Valley of Death, colliding with this meteoroid and then exploding into pieces. And that's why there's no impact crater. <gasps> So the Cyclops people sent up this fireball to get the meteor. I mean, I'm just saying it seems like that's what's happening here. So according to this account, the copper cauldron effectively saved the earth from being destroyed by a much greater impact that could have ended civilization as we know it. Like I said, the last time we had an impact from a meteoroid of this magnitude was the extinction of the dinosaurs. So right. if this had successfully hit earth, we don't know what that impact could have meant for humankind. What are the and odds? And it was 1908. That's not that long I ago. Know. What are the odds of a meteor like f coming down towards the earth and at the last minute being uh, just exploding in midair above this area? And also, I just want to reiterate, it exploded three to six miles above the earth's surface. That is nothing yeah that is so fucking close and so that's what i said is a thousand different scholarly papers have been published about it because this is a very significant event in modern history and some people say well we just got lucky and it happened to break up at the perfect moment upon entering earth's atmosphere but people who live in this region have this oral tradition already about these fireballs launching from this metal house and they claim that they saw a fireball being launched into this meteoroid Oh my gosh, I'm turned all the way up right yeah, now. Yeah, okay. If you're not, look, this is not a tinfoil hat episode. This is a tinfoil suit look episode. Look at my hands. I'm like gripping the table. <laughs> this gave me an existential crisis when I learned that we could have just never existed because yeah. this meteoroid could have hit in Russia. Okay. The devil saved us. The devil saved us. Still other phenomena have been witnessed in the surrounding areas of the Valley of Death, with people living near the area describing large hovering balloons that pop with great force in the sky when they get too close to Earth. Others report a tall pillar of light emitting from the cauldrons deep in the forest for days at a time. What? In the late 20th century and into the 21st century, several scientific studies of the Valley of Death began. The Czech researcher Ivan Matskerle explored the Siberian with his son Daniel, two pilots, a local guide named Vyacheslav, a photographer, and a fucking paraglider. What? <laughs> Why did they need that? <laughs> well, according to Ivan, prior to his journey, he had visited a local clairvoyant asking for help finding the location of the copper cauldrons. Because remember, people in 1979, they, yeah. they went with and they couldn't find it. And they were right. saying, well, you get confused. There's it's yeah. all overgrown. We can't find it. So he's like, I'm going to go to a clairvoyant because he was he had the money finally to be like, we're going to get a fucking paraglider. Yeah. We're going to get a fucking guy that has a plane and we're going to find these cauldrons once and for all. They've assembled the team. Right. So the clairvoyant marked four points on a map in Yakutia, which she said outlined the Valley of Death and then told Yvonne that going into the area would result in his immediate death. <gasps> Frightened but not deterred, Yvonne took a metal amulet with him and set out with his team of searchers. They conducted an extensive survey of the area, and on the fourth day of searching, they came upon an odd anomaly. The perfect outline of a circle melted into the snow of the Siberian taiga. Fuck, dig it up. What is it? <laughs> what is it? A little further away, they encountered a second perfectly circular outline melted into the snow. 
Yvonne was quoted as saying of the discovery, quote, There were absolutely concentric circles along the forest greenery, but nature did not favor us. At night, suddenly snow covered the mysterious place like a white tablecloth. Despite this, Pavel and the co-pilot Jiri, having gone to explore further, reported that under the snow and a thin layer of silt, they were able to feel something solid, smooth, and slightly rounded, possibly the edge of a sunken cauldron. Mm. We found the second similar place a few kilometers down the river when the, slow melt- when the snow melted. The team returned to base camp to come up with a plan to excavate the metal objects, but the following morning the team began to feel unwell. Yvonne stated, quote, I woke up in the morning, immediately felt dizzy. I began to lose consciousness. My blood pressure and heart rate were fine, but it was as if I were in a state of strong intoxication. We waited a full day, but my condition did not improve. When we left this territory, I immediately began to feel better, as if by magic. Yvonne, I don't give a fuck. Take that <laughs> omelet, whatever it is, rub that in your hand, jump in that fucking hole. Dig that shit out. Take, a take photos. Pictures. Yes, yes, please. Please tell me they took pictures. The only picture we have oh is of the melted circle in the snow because they couldn't dig anything up. So let me find this photo I trusted for you. Yvonne. I know, Yvonne, you let us down. Well, first of all, let me show you. <laughs> this is funny. I don't know why this cracks me up. This is a photo of his team. <laughs> okay, let's see what it is. Okay, yeah, these people don't look like they, they know how to <laughs> no. do anything. I'm looking at three middle-aged, maybe older. No, these are older men. They look like they're in their like late 40s. And they're wearing life jackets, and they're like they standing in like knee-deep water. Yeah. Just like looking confused. I We need like SEAL Team 6 to go in there. Yes, we need some somebody of importance to just like we need Elon Musk to just like he has the money and the resources he's yeah yeah these people I know that they probably don't have this in Russia but these people just look like three dads whose (laughs) kids are in college and they went to Bass Pro Shop and they're like let's go on an adventure into this taiga in Russia yeah these look like some dudes that are going through a midlife crisis yeah they're tired of their wives and they're like let's just go into the Siberian tundra for a week and say we're looking for cauldrons right yeah okay so another odd account comes from the experienced hunter Vasily Kuprivanovic Trofimov, who experienced an odd event in October of 2000 while alone in the Siberian what? taiga. He went alone in there? He went alone because he was hunting. He's going to experience something weird. This event is also translated and documented by that same website. So I want to shout this website out because it's a Russian website. The one that that's took just a bunch time. of random letters. Yeah, it's IIA slash RF dot And they translated. Um, but I, I do want to say that some of the translations were kind of in broken English, which, on, look, I can't speak any Russian. So this yeah. dude is already light years ahead of me. Um, so I kind of tweaked it so that it would make a little more sense. So if you do go to that website and you try to read along, you're not going to be able to read along. But uh, I'm going to read to you basically what this website said. Okay. After spending the night in a winter hut around 80 kilometers from Olgudayak, Vasily woke up when his husky began growling and barking before barreling into the forest while snarling. Vasily went outside and saw in the dark that something or someone was moving through the treetops. Although this species of tree was unable to support heavy amounts of weight or bend without breaking, something was moving quickly through the trees, mowing frost off of the branches as it went. 
The creature then jumped down from the treetops and made its way over to the winter hut where Vasily stood. The creature walking through the forest was not visible due to the darkness, but according to Vasily, as it approached him, it was so large that it blocked the night sky, creating a large hulking shadow in his doorway. Vasily called his husky back inside and barricaded himself in his hut. In the morning, Vasily found that a dry path had been cut through the snow, leading deep into the forest as far as the eye could see. Did he follow it? He didn't follow it, which, thank God, because that's how you die. Yeah. Yeah. There are further rumors and legends regarding the curse of the Valley of Death that say that the bodies of those hunters that have died in the area were thrown into lakes and their restless souls roam the area, confused by toxic fumes they encountered in the Copper Cauldron. There's ghosts, too? Because of their perpetual state of confusion, the souls are never able to escape the Siberian taiga, and they stumble through the forests, occasionally encountering people who enter their domain. Local lore states that if you enter the Valley of Death, you must not touch anything if you want to avoid the curse. Don't There's fish, a curse too? Don't fish, don't pick berries or mushrooms, and certainly don't take any other souvenir, even a rock or a stick from the area. The region is thought to be beyond salvation and best left alone and untouched by living mortals for the underground demons and wandering souls to inhabit all to themselves. And that is the story of the Valley of Death. What the fuck was that? Okay, what? Hold on. This guy, he has a husky and he's in his hut and then some big monster tries to get him and he brings his dog back in and he barricades it. Mm -hmm. And then when he wakes up, there's like a trail leading away from his hut just into the forest like picture a giant slug trail but it's like perfectly cut into the snow right and it's just there's snow all around he's this is like i said this area is like negative 96 degrees sometimes right so whatever this trail is it like melted the snow in a perfect path through the forest i wish you would have just fall just sacrifice the dog (laughs) send the dog out there to follow it this was in um traffic gopro to the dog yeah this is in the year 2000 Okay, so now we get into part four, the final part of this episode, which is theories and conclusion. Okay. All of the theories regarding the origin of the copper cauldrons can be split into two different categories. Either the objects are man-made or they are not. Since nobody believes that the metal saucers are naturally occurring, this means that the disks must either be made by humans or made by extraterrestrials. Before we dive deeper into the differences, let's first look at the similarities between these two camps. First, regardless of whether or not the metal objects are paranormal, both camps believe that the sicknesses described by the hunters and explorers who encountered them appear to be clear examples of radiation poisoning, which you Mm. had kind of said early on, this sounds like maybe a noxious fume or maybe some sort of like, yeah, radiation poisoning, like an alien craft. Right. So according to Wikipedia, acute radiation syndrome, also known as radiation sickness or radiation poisoning, is a collection of health effects that are caused by being exposed to high amounts of ionizing radiation in a short period of time. The symptoms of this sickness can start within hours or days of exposure, depending on the amount of radiation experienced, and can last for several months, at which point either recovery or death follow. The first symptoms of radiation poisoning are either nausea, vomiting, fatigue, weakness, headache, diarrhea, loss of appetite. Later, infections, bleeding, dehydration, and confusion can all take hold of the victim. For those who survive radiation poisoning, complications such as leukemia and other cancers are common. 
Acute radiation syndrome is different from chronic radiation syndrome, which would occur when following like prolonged exposures of relatively low doses of radiation. But that's, I don't think what is being described here because it's like people find a cauldron, they go under the cauldron, they immediately get sick. So it's not like mm -hmm. over time they're developing right. the sickness. And skin symptoms of radiation poisoning include itching, reddening, blisters, and ulceration. And very large skin doses of radiation can also cause permanent hair loss and major tooth decay problems and periodontal disease, which, if left untreated, can cause bone loss in the mouth, which leads to teeth falling out. So when all of those who had encountered the cauldrons got sick, do you remember some of the symptoms they had reported? Yeah, they had boils on the side of their face mm -hmm. where they were sleeping or the side of the head that was touching the metal mm -hmm. and their hair fell out right and right. they felt like really sick right and some of the hunters reported like splitting headaches nausea vomiting mm -hmm. confusion dizziness vertigo and like you said several of those who slept under the cauldrons reported things like hair loss boils tooth loss and in some cases even death in fact, Dr. Valerie Uvarov published an article in 2004 to Nexus magazine where he noted that in certain areas of Yakutia, there is a rise in the background radiation observed at certain interval intervals of time, a phenomenon that specialists cannot explain. So there's only radiation at certain, at certain intervals times. of time, right, which doesn't make sense. Right. It should just be there all the time right. if it's some natural phenomenon. Yeah. So, okay. Regardless of which theory we end up going with, and I'm going to read them all off to you, I think we can all agree that the symptoms kind of line up perfectly with radiation poisoning, so yeah. it's probably radiation poisoning. Okay, so now on to the theories. Theory number one. I'm, I'm going from, like, least based to most based. <laughs> so theory number one. Ab okay. Abandoned nuclear laboratory of the USSR. Before the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Cold War saw the reckless experimentation of nuclear technology and dangerous amounts of radiation pollution from three secret factories located in remote areas of the country. Those three factories were the Mayak, which was located in the Ural Mountains, which you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. Yep. The mining and chemical combine, which stands on the shores of the Yenisei River in Krasnoyarsk Krai. And the Siberian Chemical Combine located in the Tomsk Oblast in western Siberia. So while none of these secret factories are actually anywhere near the Valley of Death, skeptics argue that this doesn't rule out the possibility that another abandoned laboratory couldn't be located in the area. The Soviets were known for being extremely secretive to the point where average citizens living nearby the nuclear factories often didn't know they were nuclear factories and were not alerted to the fact that their towns and rivers were being polluted by the pumping and dumping of radioactive waste generated by the factories. Some Cold War era labs were even eventually abandoned, usually resulting in entire towns being closed up and sealed. Mm -hmm. However, some labs remain in operation still today. Okay, this one is kind of going into unfortunately QAnon territory oh so I know which I know we hate on this show but just hear me out <laughs> for example a Cold War era Soviet bioweapons lab was later converted into a facility that stores Ebola smallpox anthrax and other infectious diseases and do you want to guess what happened to this facility fairly recently oh my god did it blow up and all of the stuff was released the, this lab made the news when part of it exploded in September of 2019 prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, wow. And so now all of those... Why the fuck do people store that? 
well, I guess they're trying to find reasons to cures or isn't study. that yeah? Isn't that what they said? How the COVID started is like they were trying to make a vaccine. God, I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever know. But <laughs> okay, but let me just say to finish up this theory, proponents of this theory suggest that the description of a hidden entrance leading to an underground metal bunker with many sealed off rooms does sound like it could form part of an abandoned Cold War laboratory. Critics of this theory, however, are quick to point out that the tales of hunters and explorers stumbling upon these cauldrons date back well before the time of the right. Cold War, with notable examples cited in the 1850s, 1920s, and 1930s, while the Cold War didn't officially start until 1947. Yeah, and also if it's so remote and so hard to get to, then it doesn't really make sense. I mean, in some cases, it does make sense to have a lab there because like it wouldn't be able to fuck up anyone's life, I guess, because right. it's so far away. But it would be it wouldn't make sense because it would be too hard to keep people living down there. Like when you have a lab, you have to provide housing for people right. and scientists and you have to have transportation to get there of some sort. So, well, you want to. OK, so I didn't write this down, but while I was researching this, there was this like super interesting, fascinating thing I came across where some of these nomadic hunters have actually stumbled across entire abandoned sealed up towns that were only created for the purpose of nuclear Right. Like development. So like people will just be in, you know, the Siberian tundra or anywhere in remote areas of Russia, like tracking animals. And they can come across literally walled off cities that mm. were used as nuclear testing areas. That sounds Which like... Which to me, I like that to me is almost more interesting than this entire yeah, story. Yeah, I want to go like check those out yeah that sounds like it would be a map on some like call of duty or something right but unless you like <laughs> want to die of radiation poisoning then i guess we can't go there okay so that's theory number one <laughs> now theory number two space rocket crash or a crashed cosmonaut escape pod others what yes other skeptics believe that the quote-unquote cauldrons actually represent fragments of space rockets or perhaps even a crashed cosmonaut escape pod that were launched in secrecy over the Siberian taiga. While there are no documented examples of spacecrafts crashing in the Valley of Death specifically, there are several examples of such crashes in other remote areas of Russia. For example, in 1965, a Soviet crewed space mission known as the Voshkod-2 crash-landed somewhere in the Ural Mountains after a malfunction caused the craft to spin out of control, overshooting its intended landing zone by 240 miles. And this is another story that also, to me, is almost more interesting than this entire episode, because basically what happened is they sent up this this um, manned spacecraft. Mm -hmm. It... Uh, had a malfunction on its way back down. Crash lands in the Ural Mountains, which are super remote. If you guys remember our Dyatlov Pass yes. incident, the Dyatlov Pass takes place in the Ural Mountains. Right. Um, That's also where those coils were found. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so when they crashed, the two astronauts aboard uh, were in, like, basically stranded in this thick forested area. Oh my God. And the helicopter didn't even know where they were. Like the people who were supposed to like come rescue them yeah. didn't know where they were. And so they sent this helicopter to fly over the tundra, over the area they yeah. thought they were. They find them, but they can't land anywhere because it's just super thick trees. Yeah. So they, this is so fucking Russian. They just drop like a care package to them and they say, okay, survive the night. And <gasps> then we're going to try to send some people out to like cross country ski to you the next day. So the astronauts literally had to. Aren't they like strapped in that thing? Like how are they supposed to get out? you need help for to someone 
yeah, you yeah, need yeah. help to get so, out of that. Well, that's the thing. So they have like these, this care package dropped down to them. And basically their heaters had malfunctioned. Oh so they weren't working. But the fans had malfunctioned and were running at 100% capacity all the entire time they were down there. So they're literally in freezing temperatures below freezing temperatures with the fans on blast they're in their astronaut suits with like space blankets over them right just like hoping that a wolverine doesn't eat them and then the next day these cross-country ski teams come out and find them and the cosmonauts were so tired obviously like they didn't sleep at all all night that (laughs) this is also really russian the skiers built a fucking log cabin where this crash landing was <laughs> and everyone just rested inside the log cabin for a couple of days until the cosmonauts were healthy enough to ski back with the ski teams into civilization wow i was gonna say i bet in that care package there was like lots of alcohol oh i'm sure yeah that's the only way to survive a right. siberian night, night. yeah <laughs> yeah the siberian <laughs> night from hell and this particular in- uh, incident even made russia develop these special cosmonaut guns and so they would give their cosmonauts these triple barreled guns that they had invented just in case they crash just in case they crash landed upon re-entry in the t- in the taiga yeah and so it's like these crazy looking guns and they just give them to every cosmonaut that they send into space but this is also super russian this it's like 20 years between yeah. this crash landing and their decision to give them this gun <laughs> so like <laughs> So in also in general, space and rocket debris are actually a huge issue in some regions of Russia. For example, in the Altai Republic, which is located about 2,000 miles southeast of Yakutia, rocket debris is found regularly in this section of the remote Siberian mm. taiga. And in an article published to BBC.com, journalist Maria Vasileva writes, quote, But every time a rocket is launched, the discarded booster stages fall in this area of eastern Siberia, hundreds of kilometers from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Some of them are parts of the fuel tanks and contain toxic fuel. And the people who live here are concerned about the possibility of health risks. Very very little research has been carried out or published, but some local people believe they are suffering. And then there's all these quotes from like people who are just literally trying to live their lives. And as Russia has been launching these rockets over time, literally just space debris falls on their house, um, like on their house, in their forests, and it leaks this toxic fuel that then contaminates stuff. And it's really sad. Like a lot of the children there are being born with these weird anomalies that they think might be related to the toxic fuel. Right. So proponents of this theory suggest that the mysterious metal pieces found protruding from the ground might very well be pieces of rockets. However, those who disagree with the theory continue to point out that the copper cauldrons were spotted decades before any rocket experiments took place. Yeah, I don't I don't believe that because there's Cyclops people inside them. Exactly. So what, do they just came after that? No. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. All right, we're almost done here. Theory number three, hallucinations caused by methane gas. And this theory states that there are no mystical cauldrons at all. And that the sightings of saucers, one-eyed humanoids, and even the mysterious illnesses experienced by explorers can all be chalked up to hallucinations. But what about the government officials who said that there was uh, that cauldron in the the river? river. Yeah, this theory ignores that. So, as we discussed in the intro to this episode, most of Yakutia is covered in permafrost. And according to an article published to Newsweek.com, journalist Hannah Osborne writes that locked within permafrost is an organic material and when the ground thaws this material starts to break down and as it does it releases methane a greenhouse gas far more potent than carbon dioxide 
With global temperatures increasing, scientists are concerned that the warming will result in more permafrost thawing, causing more methane to be released, leading to even more warming. And so proponents of this theory argue that the valley of death may just be a hotbed of methane gas. And when humans are exposed to methane gas in high concentrations, they can experience symptoms that are similar to radiation poisoning, like rapid breathing, increased heart rate, clumsiness, dizziness, decreased vision, euphoria, weakness, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, fainting, convulsions, coma, hallucinations, and death. Mm. And this could also explain the reason for the lack of photos of the cauldrons, because maybe people are just hallucinating and they can't get the photos. However, many critics of this theory point out the vast majority of these sightings of the copper cauldrons took place in the dead of winter when permafrost is not in danger of melting. You know what I mean? So, like, if we're going with this theory and we're saying, oh, it's just people hallucinating on methane gas, yeah. then that could only take place during times that the permafrost is melting. No, and this, I don't believe. Yeah. I don't even need to hear more about that. That one's get that one out of here. Right. So that was all the skeptic theories. Now we get yeah. into the deep fried theories. Theory number four, an ancient advanced human civilization. And this to me is the most boring of all of the base theories simply because I don't believe it. And there's also (laughs) not really any information on it anyway. But basically proponents of this theory suggest that the copper cauldrons scattered throughout the Valley of Death are the remnants of an ancient civilization far more advanced than our own who were wiped out thousands of years ago by some unknown cause. And there have been instances in Russia where evidence of advanced civilizations were found, but not the kind of advanced civilization that would be required to like build these objects. Right. So, for example, in 2008, a team of archaeologists find the remains of a 2,500-year-old civilization at the bottom of a lake. So it's like a dried lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, they did find ritual bronze cauldrons and bronze mirrors, gold currency, Ooh. festive horse harnesses, uh, and more. But the cauldrons found in this valley are literally just cauldrons. Right. They're, they're not like these giant room saucers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Theory number five, the laughing chasms and Yakut- Yakutian deities. This theory comes directly from an excerpt of an article entitled Mysteries of Siberia's Valley of Death, written by Dr. Valerie Uvarov. Quote, once some old men said that flowing in the place called Tangdurai is a stream called Otomak, or holes in the ground and that around it there are incredibly deep openings known as the Laughing Chasms. That same name also crops up in legends that state that this is the dwelling of a fiery giant who destroys everything around him. Roughly every six or seven centuries, a monstrous fireball bursts from this chasm, and it either flies off somewhere into the distance, explodes there, or it explodes directly above its exit point, as a result of which the area for hundreds of kilometers around has been reduced to a scorched desert with scattered rocks. And this theory states that the source of the fireballs, explosions, and mystical cauldrons are all indicative that the legends of the Yakutian people are actually fact and not fiction. Mm. And for whatever reason, the Valley of Death is thought to be the battleground of demons and gods locked in a continuous power struggle. And the report of Vasily, that guy with the Siberian husky, He and he witnessed that large figure that blocked out the sky in front of him. That actually directly mirrors a story involving Tong Durai, who is said to have been so large that he blocked out the sky when he flew. So it's like this legend from the Yakutian people. Okay, what's more based? I need to, we need to keep going because that one, yeah, that one's not doing it for me just yet. Yeah, so this one's really short because I don't like it either. Theory six crashed alien ships. 
And this theory states that the disc-like cauldrons may be the result of an alien crash landing, and they argue that the testimony of those who witnessed sleeping alive, in one instance, dead one-eyed beings in metal armor, can only mean that aliens are in the region. Mm. The angle at which witnesses describe the domes as being half buried in the earth seems to be evidence of a high-impact crash, according to these theorists. I don't like this one because it doesn't explain why there's an entire metal room underneath the disc. Okay, theory number seven. An alien base that protects the Earth from being destroyed. Yeah. Yes. This sounds sounds like it's right up my alley. This theory draws from the legends of the Yakut people and the eyewitness testimony of those who have reported seeing fireballs in the sky near the cauldrons. Recalling the Tunguska event of 1908 where a meteoroid exploded in midair over the alleged location of one of these cauldrons, some theorize that aliens may have established this area as a sort of command post to keep the human race safe. Interestingly, are you ready to get one deeper? Yes. Interestingly, another meteorite took almost the exact same trajectory as the Tunguska event before exploding above the Chulum River in Siberia in 1984. And this explosion is known as the Chulum Bolide. And studies conducted by scientists in the areas of both explosions show an accelerated annual growth of trees and vegetation in the area, which mirror the accounts described by some witnesses of the copper cauldrons who reported seeing abnormally tall grass and plant life near the domes. And one more deeper, Mm. an even more recent meteorite explosion took place over Russia in 2013 when the Chelyabinsk meteor exploded over the southern Ural region. And the light from this meteor was brighter than the sun, visible up to 62 miles away, and generated an intense heat felt felt by witnesses on the ground. The meteorite exploded at a height of around 18 miles, creating a large shockwave. And while we don't have footage of that 1908 Tunguska event or the 1984 Chulum Bolide explosion, we do have footage of the 2013 Chelyabinsk meteor, and it is fucking insane. Oh my gosh, I want to see. Okay. I'm so would all these you. meteors have like wiped out civilization if they would have impacted with the Earth? Um, so these other two ones would have at least wiped out large chunks of Russia, mm. but the Tunguska event certainly would have had far-reaching impact. Right. Okay, so you can just hit the space bar, and it's basically, I don't know if you guys are super into looking at Russian, um, yeah. like, cams. Yes. You know, like, people have, like, those car cams right, where they're yeah. driving, and, like, people are driving insane, and then they beat each other up. Okay. Okay, so this is, like, a compilation of those types a of... A car cam? Yeah. Okay. I press the space bar. It's liter- It's literally insane. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm I'm looking at a dash cam. Someone driving. <gasps> wow, there was a giant explosion. Oh, okay, this is okay. I'm excited. I can't <laughs> keep up with my emotions right now. There's, this is just a compilation of fucking crazy shit happening. Yeah. <laughs> There's like smoke billowing. There was a giant explosion in the sky. Here's another a meteor coming to Earth. I would feel like I was gonna die if I saw yes. this. <gasps> How are these people just driving and they're not even freaking out or anything? Man. Yeah, it literally looks like the end of times. Yes, it looks like an epic battle, right? Right. Wow. Yeah, this meteor looks huge. It lights up the entire sky. <laughs> I like the like Russian music on in the background. I know. 
Okay. So that wow is the Chelya Binks explosion, which happened in 2013. Some of you might remember that because it was all over the news. Okay. So this theory says, could aliens have identified this area as being directly in the pathway of meteorites or as being particularly at risk for meteorite impact? And could they have established bases on Earth to use to destroy these meteorites before their inevitable impact, thus saving the human race time and time again from utter destruction? Mm. Okay, now here's the final and most oh based God. theory of them all. What is it? <laughs> theory eight, ancient extraterrestrial power stations to a weapon built early in the history of mankind. This final theory expands upon and tweaks the previous theory by adding one crucial element. Rather than the copper cauldrons housing the weapons themselves, like the weapons that shoot right. down these meteorites, this theory states that the cauldrons are actually just power stations for an alien weapon located somewhere above the Earth's atmosphere. This weapon is often described as a satellite and it is thought that it is the Black Knight oh my satellite. God. They're tied together. And they're tied together. So if you guys don't know what the Black Knight satellite is, there's no, no time, time to, to explain. explain. You need to go listen to episode 67 of our podcast where we covered it in great detail. But basically, it's an alleged alien satellite that's been orbiting our Earth for 13,000 years with the purpose of monitoring us and keeping us safe. So proponents of this theory think that the copper cauldrons were placed on Earth as a monitoring system that send information back to the Black Knight satellite and the Black Knight satellite may actually be equipped with a weapon that destroys meteorites and other objects as they enter Earth's okay, atmosphere. Okay, that's my favorite one. So that is the entire story of Russia's Valley of Death. Oh my Nat God, that was amazing. Thank you. And Natalia, I need uh, to know, first of all, did this live up to episode 69 yes. on 420? Yes, okay. this is the perfect episode. Okay, good. I had me, you had me worried there when you were like <laughs> going on a tangent talking about a place that doesn't matter. But then I, I see why you did what you did. Because... Because People will just be like, it's volcanoes. And I know. It's like, no, I don't that's a completely separate area. Have that conversation no. with a bunch of people on Twitter and no. just raise my blood exactly. pressure. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why I had to mention <laughs> it right off the top. So that is eight theories that we covered. Wow. Which of those theories is your favorite and or which of those theories do you believe? Well, I feel like a lot of them kind of go together. So yeah. if you have this ancient um, the theory number eight is obviously my favorite. This like ancient uh, like weapon designed to protect the earth. But if uh, but it kind of ties with some of the other ones. Um, I don't know which number it was, but you were talking about the indigenous people that are there saying that um, these are homes to their like gods or deities or whatever mm -hmm. that also protect the earth in their own way. And I feel like those two kind of go together because that like a lot of folklore or like mythology or um, I don't don't know like what else you would call it ancient legends yeah ancient legends will be used to describe something that people are actually witnessing and explain it and so that to me like it's very similar yeah i, I definitely agree and i you bring up a good point like there's a reason why these stories and legends exist in yeah. this particular area if you're a true believer of these legends, then maybe you say, well, it's an epic battle of good versus evil. You know, the underground people versus the gods. Right. And they just happen to be warring in this area. If you're more skeptical, then maybe you say, well, what they're actually seeing is meteorites because this area is very prone to meteorite mm -hmm. impact. And then if you believe the stories of these hunters that have come across these copper cauldrons in the area, then maybe you think the aliens have something to do or the creatures, whatever you believe them right. to be, have something to do with these explosions in the sky. 
I don't know. I'll do you one deeper, though. Yeah. But, like, all of... So, I watched this documentary on Netflix. It was, like, several... It was, like, a miniseries about astronauts. I can't remember what it's called. You guys look look, look <laughs> it up. But it was following an astronaut, and um, he was going through, like, his whole process of, like, how he goes up into space. It was, it's called A Year in Space. That's what it's called. But anyways, when they come back into um, the atmosphere, they always land in Russia. They pick, like, this random part of the Siberia um where there's like nothing around and they they always land their uh whatever it is like escape pod what is it called the thing that re-enters the atmosphere the capsule yeah the capsule they, yeah they land the capsule there and then people come and rescue them and they have like all of these helicopters searching for where the capsule lands just like you were talking about but it's like interesting that there's there's lots of space stuff that happens in Russia now some people are saying it's because <laughs> this area there's nothing around there so you don't have to worry about like an entire town getting taken out by like right. some capsule but also, I don't know. I'm not I, I don't have the brain power to draw all of those connections, but someone can. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. And I wanted to show you an image that I forgot to show you earlier. This is another drawing of one of that that one of the oh, hunters drew yeah. coming across this quote unquote cauldron or dome. Yeah, I mean this is someone riding a reindeer, which first of all is fucking my dream. And <laughs> they're looking at a yeah, this giant dome um that's protruding out of the earth. And it looks like it has razor sharp edges, just like you were saying. Wow, I I really want to go here now. Right? Like I wanna find these domes i really want to ride a reindeer that stupid game i was playing that i ended up quitting because it was too hard and it was making me sad that it's like um valhalla oh yeah you ride a reindeer around in there and, and ever since then i've wanted now it's to your it. dream well maybe yeah. guys if you want to fund us going to russia you can continue donating at all of the places we mentioned at the beginning and maybe we'll do it but let me read my sources first yes. before we get into our final thoughts uh, kids.nationalgeographic.com <laughs> heraldry-wiki.com wikipedia.org rbth.com an article entitled Three Paranormal Sites in Russia uh, pbs.org um, that's where I learned about Kamchatka kpufo.eu rbth.com again um, soartv.tv medium.com an article entitled The Mysterious Cauldrons from Siberia's Valley of Death uh, worldwildlife.org globaldomains.com an article entitled Will You Boilers That Kill People in the Yakut Valley of Death <laughs> iia-rf.ru that's the mm -hmm. website I kept saying like, was translating things for me um, abovetopsecret.com is just a forum where people were like shit posting about this <laughs> forbes.com an article entitled explosion confirmed at former soviet weapons lab now storing ebola anthrax and plague uh bbc.com newsweek.com nevadano.com iskconnews.org and an article entitled archaeologists uncovered 2500 year old civilization in russia link.springer.com and esolibris.com an article entitled ufo siberia and there are literally so many sources i just read them all but there's so many that i'm going to copy and paste them into the description of this episode 
wow, that was a really great episode. And Thank I really, you. that really just got me excited about conspiracy theories again. Right. I know because it's been, we did, as we've mentioned on this show, we really strayed away from them after yeah. we talked about QAnon because it was just like. I know. I was just ready to be a normal citizen and not look beyond anything. After I was just QAnon so episode. like, I was just so like, I don't know. I just like lost my faith in humanity during that episode. Yeah. So then I haven't covered anything in a while. But the Black Knight satellite got me into this concept because they're linked i love that they're connected yeah too i love it too yeah and i love that you guys have been sending us all these memes of space debris (laughs) (laughs) it's great yeah wow what a great story i'm super interested i really want to look into this more and i really want to be sent to that part of russia i'm also just like can we send some sacrificial lambs in there like i fucking love my dog i love huskies but i'll i'm willing to kill thousands of them (laughs) if we can put if we can find these cyclops and just send them out there right like there, there has to be something we can do. Reindeer, I guess. Maybe put train some reindeer and send yeah, them in put there. It, I'm telling you, put several GoPros on reindeer. Yeah. And just let them loose. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Pretty, pretty fucking wild. And I also love that there's a possible ghost angle to this. I know. Like, there's also ghosts. Yeah. It's like now you've got ghosts. And a curse. And a curse. And aliens and or gods and underworld dwellers what about that clairvoyant that was wrong who said that he would die instantly well he got really sick and then he had to come home so maybe she was half right right like maybe instantly to her was like you will start dying instantly <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, you will, and then you will make a you full recover <laughs> almost a recovery almost instantly <laughs> that's amazing yeah man i yeah i really have to think about this more i love the russian stories too because too. it's just such I a fascinating russia. place thank you our, to our russian listeners too who've been recommending that i cover more russian stories because it got me looking into this as well yes what well, a great story thank you natalia would you like to do our sign off yeah i would love to okay let me think um brb gotta go to bass pro shop with all of my besties and get a band of women to go into the real death valley yeah. of siberia and find out what is going on there perfect beautiful i love it all right guys bye, bye. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.